Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Well, what is the kingdom of God like? That's the, one of the questions, I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the questions we've sort of been trying to answer as 1 and 2 Samuel has been going on as we've been looking at those stories. What is the kingdom of God like? Because you see Saul, who we met in 1 Samuel, he was a king chosen by the people. He was really part of the kingdom of, of men, a king that came from, um, from the people, and it all went wrong. He stopped listening to God, and eventually things wound down and ground down and into the dust they went, and Saul disappeared, and it didn't go well. And then along comes King David, a man chosen by God, and he becomes king eventually after a long period of testing, and David becomes king, and God's kingdom comes. You know how we pray that in the Lord's Prayer? Lord, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this is a story of God's kingdom coming, of his king walking onto the earth, of God's kingdom come. And so when we're reading through, as we have been, reading through the stories of 2 Samuel, like um, we've been saying week by week, when light shines on David, it casts a Jesus-shaped shadow, doesn't it? Most of the time. And then when David's in the dark, when he's doing some pretty dark things, then there's no shadow to, to look at. And we long for brightness. We long for light. We long for a king much better than David. We long for God's king kingdom still to come. You see, we still have that line in our prayer, even though God's kingdom came, sort of, under David. We're still praying, aren't we, day by day, God, would your kingdom come? So what is God's kingdom like? Well, it's like this, like the story of 2 Samuel, but maybe it's a strange picture for us. You know, kings and and queens and princes and battles and bloodshed and all of this kind of thing is quite foreign to our ears. So maybe we need a couple of other pictures to help us understand what it's like when God's king comes in and his kingdom comes. I think it's a little bit like when a new coach takes over a sports team. If you're a Welsh fan, um, you'll be maybe looking forward to, I don't know, maybe a little bit daunted by Warren Gatland moving on and, I've forgotten his name, Wayne Pivak. Is he Welsh or is he, is he from New Zealand as well? Somewhere, somewhere far away. But um, he's done a great job with the Scarlets, hasn't he? He had over the last couple of years. And so we're kind of looking forward to, sort of a little bit nervous about when he comes and takes over the Welsh national team. And what's going to happen? Well, when he does, the culture will change. When he does, the way of playing will probably change. When he does, the people will change. A lot changes when a new coach comes into a sports team. It won't be long, I'm sure, before, if you're a fan of Premier League football, we see coaches start to get sacked as the ones down the bottom of the league don't do so well. And the hope is when a new coach, when a new king comes in, a new culture will come, a new dawn, new light, new hope new performances, new ways of doing things. We'll go from defeat to victory. You see, that's what happens when Jesus comes in as king. That's what happens in Israel when David came in as king. They went from defeat to victory, from darkness to light, from down the bottom of the league, deflated, struggling to hope and joy and hopefully victory. But then with David, it didn't quite all go as we hoped it would. God's kingdom came, sort of, you're not really into sports, 
Well, I think we'll all, most of us anyway, have been to school. Do you remember what it's like when you have a, a really rubbish, not a very good teacher who's kind of drains you and you're not motivated? And, and history, for example, that was my one. History is just a bit boring until Mr. Spark turns up, GCSE year, and makes history sparkle. He was, he was brilliant. He's now the headmaster of my school. He was pretty strict, so I think some of the children don't like him anymore. But, um, but he was an amazing history, history teacher. Well, my music teacher, Mr. Stubberfield, made music just crackle all of the time. It was really, really brilliant. A lot of fun when you have a good teacher. But what happens when the good teacher that you enjoy, who gets you motivated, who makes you have a passion for that subject, what happens when they're sick or when they're away? You get a substitute teacher in, don't you? Or a supply teacher. And what happens when you get a supply teacher in? Well, most of the time, people are celebrating, aren't they? They're, look, they're loving it, looking forward to just watching films through the whole of the, the next um, week's classes, looking forward to having worksheets to do instead of having to actually engage. You're looking forward to a bit of a break, aren't you, from the teacher. But when the teacher's really, really good, after a while, a supply teacher isn't so much fun anymore. After a while, you're kind of looking forward to getting the teacher back. And I think that's where we are in our story today. Last week, Sammy um, was looking at the story of Absalom. We started it two weeks ago when Absalom, David's son, challenges him for the throne and, and basically pulls up a coup, a military coup. He marches into Jerusalem, but David is long gone. He's fled back into the desert. He's been a wonderful king, but people have sort of forgotten about that over the years. And so they follow Absalom and, and away goes David. Then as Sammy was picking up last week, there's a big battle. Absalom goes out to fight David and ends up losing as you do if you stand up against God's chosen king. It all seems like hope and joy and freedom to begin with, and it just ends in sadness and misery and death, for Absalom anyway, and for many, many, many of his followers. And so now we get to chapter 19, and it, some people are looking forward to David coming back. Others are not really sure. It's a bit like your favorite teacher leaving, and it, it was good for a while because it wasn't so strict. And then you realized how good he was. And then you miss him, or you miss her. And the supply teacher, instead of being lots of fun, becomes a bit of a drag. And you wish you could get your teacher back. And so let's read a bit of chapter, chapter 19 of Samuel. We'll start from verse 9. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were all arguing with each other, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. See, they're remembering how good it was under David. But now he's fled the country because of Absalom. And Absalom, who we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. Oops. So why do you say nothing about bringing him back? You see, they're arguing. They're finding out it's not so good without a good king. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout, the, throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. You are my brothers, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, now Amasa was Absalom's general, the commander of all of his armies. Look what David says to Amasa. Are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely. If from now on, you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. So in verse 14, David won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. So they've been missing the king. 
sort of. Some people are anyway, and they're arguing about whether they want him back. And so the big question mark at the beginning of chapter 19 is, is the king going to come back? Is it going to be happily ever after? Is God's kingdom going to come? And now the question is, now we've seen he does come back. Eventually they invite him back. But now the question is, what's he going to do when he comes back? I mean, what would you do? If you were a supply teacher and you walked back into the room when the supply teacher's still there, sorry, if you were the real teacher and you walk back when the supply teacher's there and the kids are kicking off, everybody's uh, messing, and they seem to have ruined a whole term's worth of work, all the stuff you've been working for and it's gone, it's forgotten in the chaos of the supply teacher. I apologize if you're a supply teacher. Maybe this is a bit harsh. We had some wonderful supply teachers. I'm sure supply teachers are great. But you kind of remember that, right? When the supply teacher comes, he doesn't know how to handle the kids and it's, it's not easy. But anyway, David's coming back. What's it going to be like for those children? It's going to be even more discipline, isn't it? What's it going to be like for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah, who turned, who betrayed David, who followed his son instead of him? It's going to be a bloodbath, isn't it? That's what we'd expect, that David is going to root out all of his enemies, and he's going to cut their throats and finish them off once and for all, stamp his authority, say, now I'm the king, and you better not mess with me again. That's what we might expect, except that's not what he did, was it? He hung back a little bit and he sent messengers and he said to them, would you like me to come back? I'm your flesh and blood. To the people who betrayed him, the people of Judah, he said, I'm your flesh and blood. Would you like me to come back as your king? See, he's wise in the way that he does it. He's really gracious and patient. He appeals to them as his his fellow countrymen. And then that move with Amasa, is a bit of a strange one, a bit of maybe a, a hard one for Joab to take. But Joab had murdered his son, so you, you can imagine maybe why David would have done this. It's a wise move to get his enemies back on side, to get all of those fighting men who Amasa had led, this great general, and said, come on, you be mine now. You're, all is forgiven. You're welcome back into the foes. It's a clever move, isn't it? And maybe a, a little bit of bitterness against Joab, who'd murdered his own son and said, no, Joab, you can't command anymore. See, David is wise, and he's trying to heal the wounds. He's trying to put people back together and bring them back to be one nation under God's king. So David has got to the Jordan. That's where we're up to so far. Now, the Jordan is a place of new beginnings, isn't it? Do you remember the Jordan is the river that they crossed to get into the land to begin with? If you skip ahead a few centuries, Jordan is the place people go to to meet John the Baptist and to have a restart, a new beginning in their lives, to be baptized. We don't want to jump ahead too far, too fast. But Jordan, that's all about new beginnings. It's all about God making a way for things to start afresh. And so that's where David is. You already see him kind of beginning to do that before he gets to the Jordan, being wise, being gentle, being clever, and trying to unite people instead of threaten them. So what happens when he gets across the Jordan? Will he continue Or has it all just been a a ruse to get himself back into the palace and then cut the throats of all of his enemies? Well, let's read on and see. I want you to notice as we go that David meets three people, two of whom we've met before. Um, Back in, I think, where was it? Uh, Chapter 16 and 17. Um, David, when he was fleeing Jerusalem, running away from the coup, he met a number of people. And some of those names come back, and they're in reverse order. Okay, so David's returning back to Jerusalem, meets some of the same people, and they tell us a lot about David, they tell us a lot about this king, they tell us a lot about what it is to wait for 
and um, look for the king who's returning. Let's read from verse um, 15. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Gera, the, Benjam- the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. Did you recognize any of those names? Maybe not. They're strange names. Hard to remember strange names. But Shimei was a man, one of the last people that David saw before he went into the wilderness. And what was he doing? Well, he was picking up stones and dust and chucking them at David, cursing him, calling him a man of blood, saying, you deserve this. You brought it on your own head, calling down God's curses on David. He'd stood against God's chosen king. He'd picked Absalom instead and was glad to see David leave, was glad to see David go, was hoping for his death. And the other one is Ziba. Ziba was a friend of David, or so he thought. Ziba was was Mephibosheth's servant. Okay, this whole, uh, see if you can follow along. David had a best friend called Jonathan back in the day, back in 1 Samuel. Jonathan was Saul's son, so the crown prince. David's best friend became Jonathan, this man who should have had the throne, but David had it instead. They were best friends, surprising best friends, perhaps. And David promised Jonathan that he'd always look after his line. He'd always look after his family. And so when David comes to the throne and Jonathan is dead, he finds out that there's one son left, Mephibosheth. He's a crippled son. He's got nothing going for him. Really, David should have just bumped him off and got rid of that last kind of last bit of Saul's line. But he doesn't. He welcomes Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, into his own household. And Ziba is Mephibosheth's servant. Okay, Ziba's the one who's helping out Mephibosheth, who serves him and and helps him. Now Ziba comes along when David's running away from Jerusalem and says, Mephibosheth has betrayed you. I'm really sorry to say, but Mephibosheth, you know, who you showed kindness to for so long, he's turned his back on you. He's seen that this is the moment for him to get back into power for Saul's line to, to get back. And so he's turned over and he's on Absalom's side now. That's who Ziba is. He's somebody who told David, who gave David the bad news that Mephibosheth had betrayed him. But let's read on and see what happens when these two meet David. It's kind of strange folks, Shimei anyway, to come and meet David at the Jordan, considering he was so glad to see him go. Now, when Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate face down before the king and said to him, may my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord, the king, left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord, the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, the bloodthirsty, said, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? The answer to that question is yes. If you stand before the king, you really do deserve that. That's one of the laws in Deuteronomy. You don't curse God's anointed. Shouldn't he be put to death for this? For he has cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? This day, you've, come at, you've become my adversaries. Now, should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am the king over Israel? So the king said to Shemai, you shall not die. And the king promised him, on oath. Do you see what he just did? 
He forgave, he forgave somebody who never should have been forgiven. The king returned, and instead of wiping out his enemies, he lifted up his enemies. The man who'd been throwing dust at David, saying, you deserve this. Well, when David came back, when the Lord rescued and restored the kingdom to him, he's now in the dust, praying, asking for forgiveness from God's king. And what does he do? Well, when the king comes home, he forgives. He lifts him up. I wonder if that reminds you of anybody. When Jesus, when Jesus went out of the city, out of Jerusalem, into the wilderness of death to die in the east, well, when he came back on the third day in the resurrection, what did he do to people like Peter who denied him? What did he do for people like the priests who had who'd put him there in the first place? Well, Peter was restored. Peter was made the rock of the church to go and preach to everyone, to tell them of the grace of God, of the forgiveness of God that he'd experienced. And what about the priests? Well, we're told in Acts that many thousands of the priests and of the people who'd put Jesus on the cross, who'd said, crucify him just a few weeks earlier, many of them, when they heard of the resurrection, when they heard Jesus was king, when they heard that they could be forgiven, well, they were cut to the heart. They said, we've sinned, but please don't remember our sins. And they turned to him and he forgave them. And they came, they became part of the church. When the king comes back, forgiveness reigns. Well, what about Ziba? Let's carry on with the story. Then Mephibosheth, in verse 24, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, that betrayer, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet, as in he hadn't trimmed his nails, um, or trimmed his moustache, or washed his clothes. From the day the king left, until the day he returned safely. That's months. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? How could you betray me? And he said, my lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I'll have my donkey saddled and I'll ride on it so that I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God. So do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave me, you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. You made me a son, he's saying. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? You've been so good to me. How can I ask for anything more? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that my lord, the king, has arrived home safely. That's enough for me. Isn't that beautiful? All that time, David had thought, this boy who he'd brought in as a son had turned his back, had betrayed him. And then he comes back. And can you just imagine the relief? How wonderful would that be to know it wasn't true? That that person you thought had turned their back on you actually had loved you all along. You see, what Mephibosheth was doing was mourning. That's what they did in Israel. They didn't trim their hair, they didn't trim their beards, um, they lay in the dust, they didn't change their clothes in, in times of mourning. So from the day that David had gone, weeks and months before, Ziba's been mourning. Now Ziba's a pretty public character in Jerusalem. He would have been, you know, the grandson of the, the king before, the only one left from around David's table, now everybody else has gone. And Ziba, through all of that, sorry, Mephibosheth, through all of that time, is making a public display of how he is on David's side. Do you see how that would be dangerous for Mephibosheth? Do you see how much love, how much commitment that takes for him 
to say in front of all of Absalom's allies, in front of all the, of the people who would very gladly cut David's throat, in their presence, in the palace, right there in Jerusalem, Zib, uh, Mephibosheth has been saying, I stand with David. My allegiance is with him. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going to tidy up. I'm not going to wear nice clothes. I'm not going to hide my lamp under a bushel. I'm with the king. And until he comes back, I'll be like this. You see how dangerous that would have been for him? You see how much of a stand that is for him? I wonder if that reminds you of perhaps some things Jesus has said to us. Some things that Sammy read earlier on. That when the master is away, when the coach is gone on the long trip back to New Zealand, I don't know, perhaps he's had a family bereavement. When he's away, how are we going to play and train? When the teacher's away and it's a supply teacher instead, how are we going to play? How are we going to learn? How are we going to study? How are we going to behave? When the master is away, when the king isn't here right in front of us, with his eye upon us, how are we going to behave? How are we going to conduct ourselves? How are we going to hold this light that we have? Hold our identity as people who belong to Jesus? Is it going to be something that we hide under a bushel? Because it's hard to do that in our culture. Is it going to be something that we keep away and keep hidden and try and blend in as much as we can until he comes back, if we even remember that he's coming back. You see, for Mephibosheth, he did something costly. He stood out and waited for the king. Well, you might expect he'd get rewarded. And he sort of does, doesn't he? He gets half of his land back. Why does David do that? Why doesn't he just say, Ziba, you're the one who's betrayed me. You're the one who's the sellout, the turncoat. Now everything's going to be taken off you and, and you'll be thrown outside. Mephibosheth's going to have all the land. It's a bit of a strange thing that he does, isn't it? Um, there's a bit of debate. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it might be a bit of a thing similar to what Solomon does when those two women, if you know this strange story, when Solomon's king later on, David's other son, when he's king later on, two women come along and they're fighting over one baby. It's a tragic story. And Solomon says, right, let's divide the baby in half. And one of the mothers says, no, 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 don't do that. And the other one says, oh, okay, fine. It shows which one is really the mother, right? The one who just wants the baby to live. And so Solomon's wisdom, he shows who's, who's real, who's the, the one who truly loves that baby. Well, who's the one who truly loves David? Who's the one who is really telling the truth? Was it Ziba? I mean, because he has been pretty faithful in the past. He's been good. Or is it Mephibosheth? Maybe this is just a show. You see, David doesn't know everything. He's not Jesus. It looks a lot like Mephibosheth is really telling the truth, and he's pretty sure he is. But we're not 100% sure, says David. So let's do a little test. I think this is what's going on here. Let's divide those fields and see. If Mephibosheth, if, if Mephibosheth is the one telling tales, well, then maybe he'll kick up a fuss, and then we'll know that he's really just interested in getting his land back. He doesn't really love me, the king. And what about Ziba? Well, he didn't deserve much in the first place, so we'll see if he's happy with half. And whether he kicks off, and, and we'll see if he's willing to be obedient to the king. You see, David is being a judge here, is being a, a just and fair judge, doing a little test to see what's in Mephibosheth's heart. And what is in Mephibosheth's heart? Verse 30. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. I don't care about land. I don't care about dust and fields and possessions. I don't care about that. Now that my lord, the king, has arrived, arrived home safely, you are all that I want. You are my treasure. Do you see? David has proven what's in Mephibosheth's heart. It's a clever little way to see whether Mephibosheth just wanted stuff, wanted what David could give to him, 
or whether he just wanted David himself. Do you see who that points to? Do you see what kind of attitude that points us to? That when Jesus comes back, as Sammy was saying earlier, when Jesus comes back and he looks at what we've done with the lives that, we've give, that he's given to us, when he looks at what we've done with the gospel, the good news, the treasure that he's given to us, what will he do? Well, he'll, he'll see what's in our hearts. He'll see if we really love him or if we were just in it for ourselves, just using the good news to, I don't know, make a reputation for ourselves, just using whatever he's given to us to get more for us, just using God as a divine kind of vending machine, putting in our prayers, putting in our time at church, putting in our obedience, and really wanting the stuff that he gives us, good health, wealth, longer life, happier families, easier relationships. These are the kind of things that God does give us as blessings. But they're the kind of things that can distract us, that can make us say, really, we don't love Jesus all that much. We just want what he gives to us. So when he comes back, will it be enough for you just to have him? Or really, is your eye, is your heart on the stuff of this world? That's what happens. That's the story and the challenge of Mephibosheth. But there's one more, one more who we haven't actually met, met before. Let's read a little of his story. Now, Barzillai is his name. He's a Gileadite. This is in verse 31, if you're following along. He also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now, Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years of age. He provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I'll provide for you. But Barzillai basically says, no, I'm becoming an old man. I just want to go home and rest in my own home and then rest with my ancestors. So would you take Kimham instead? Probably Barzillai's son. Would you take him instead of me? Take him to be your son, essentially. Take him to be a part of your family. Let him, this is in verse 37, let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him whatever pleases you. Now listen to what David says. The king said, the king said, Kimham will cross over with me and I will do for him whatever pleases you. And anything you desire from me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and gave him his blessing, and Barzillai returned to his home. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's basically what David is saying to Barzillai. Somebody who has enormous wealth and has used it for the king. He's used it for the good of God's chosen one. He's helped him and, um, and been on his side. And so when the king comes back, what does he do? Well, he's shown forgiveness and grace to Shimei, who didn't deserve it. He's shown justice and wisdom. And he's given his heart to, um, to Mephibosheth, who gives himself completely to the king. And then what about Barzillai? Well, grace, forgiveness, justice and wisdom and reward. That's what Barzillai gets. That's what happens when the king comes back. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've used your wealth sacrificially. You've given it to me while I was away. Well, you had no idea what was going to happen. You didn't know what the end would be, but you've trusted God. You've put your faith in his king and you've given more than your 10%, more than your tithes, more than was asked, more than needed was needed. And so come in, come and be a part of my kingdom. Come and live with me. Now, Barzillai says, no thanks. For now, it's not because he's turning his back on David. He just wants to go home and die in peace where he's comfortable. But he says, take my son instead. 
And so the king said, just let me read to you those lines again. The king said, I will do for him whatever pleases you. And anything you desire for me, I will do for you. Does that remind you some of the verses that we read in Luke chapter 12 just now? Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return. So when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Now what will happen when they immediately open the door? It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes, who've done faithfully. What happens when his master finds them watching when he comes? I tell you the truth. Now whenever Jesus says that, we really need to listen up because it's something extra special. It's, um, if you're kind of reading older English translations, it's when Jesus says, verily, verily, or um, amen, amen, that kind of thing. I tell you the truth, so listen carefully. The master will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. So what does the king do when he comes back? What happens at the return of the king? Well, it's not a bloodbath. When Jesus comes back, there's grace for those who don't deserve it. When Jesus comes back, there's wisdom and justice and gifts for, even for those who don't deserve it. When Jesus come back, comes back, there's reward for those who've done well, who've done faithfully. And when Jesus comes back, he serves us. Did you hear that? I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. In those days, they would wear, um, especially wealthy, kind of master-type men, they would wear big flowing robes. Maybe you've heard that in the story of the prodigal son where the father kind of picks up his skirts and runs off um, to meet him. Well, this is something that they wouldn't do. You would pick up, if you were a servant or a slave, you'd pick up your, kind of, your dress, the, the flowing robes that you were wearing, and you'd tuck them into your belt, and that would kind of free your legs and your arms to be able to lift up heavy things, to do dirty jobs. See, that's what you would do. If, if you had something heavy to lift, if you had some feet to wash, you would get a slave. The slave would tuck in his long robes and then he'd get down and wash, or he'd pick up heavy stuff. He'd prepare himself. He'd gird himself to serve. But masters never did that. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, when the master returns and finds you working faithfully, he'll pick up his flowing robes, tuck them into his belt, kneel down, wash your feet, pick up heavy loads, and serve you. David knows that he's king. He said that to Abishai. I know that I'm king today, so let's do mercy. Let's forgive. I know that I'm king today, so let's do justice and put wrongs to right and help Mephibosheth. I know that I'm king today, so let's serve and give and help and reward those who've faithfully served me. We can see how Jesus is really the greater David, can't we? When David comes back, it's not the end of the story. We'll see if you read on to the next chapter and beyond that it just goes sad again. There's more divisions, there's more sadness, there's more bloodshed because David is God's king, but he's not God's final king. Well, who is God's last and final forever king? Jesus. So what do we, I want you to take from today? Number one, Jesus is coming back. David was out there. They weren't really sure. Would he come back? Would he not? Do we want him back? We're not sure. No, Jesus is coming back, whether you want him to or not. So would you be somebody, not like Shimei, who has to grovel at the very last moment, but would you be somebody like Mephibosheth? who serves him through that whole time at a cost to himself, at risk to himself, would you stand out for Jesus and serve that king until you get to see him face to face? Would you be somebody like Barzillai who uses all of his wealth, who takes not just his little tenth, you know, not just what he has to give, but from all of his wealth, 
from not just his income, but from his assets, from the stuff that he owns, from his precious things, and gives to God's king? Would you be somebody who lives as if he's coming back soon, who looks forward to his grace and forgiveness, who looks forward to his justice to put the world to rights, and who looks forward to that reward that we'll receive for his sake? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are a good king. We thank you that you're a king who's coming back. That even though we don't see you face to face right now, Lord, we know that you are the king, the rightful and true king. And that there is a day that the Father knows when all of this world will see you for who you really are. Lord, we pray that you would help us to serve you in the meantime. Help us not just to trust our eyes, but help us to look with the eyes of faith and see that you really are the king. Lord, we pray now that you would help us to repent like Shimei did, but not at the last moment. Lord, now we pray you'd help us to do it today, to fall on our faces before you and say, oh Lord, we've sinned. We've turned against you. We haven't lived as if you were the king. We've lived as if we were kings, as if we could do what we wanted. Lord, we're sorry for that. We're sorry for that. And we ask that you would forgive us. As David forgave Shimei, as you forgave Peter, Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, we pray that you would make us people like Mephibosheth, who stand out for you, even when it's costly. Lord, we thank you that you're coming back to do justice. And we pray that you'd make us people like Barzillai, who take all that we have and give it in your service, that we might hear on that final day those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at amford church make sure to like us on facebook and lastly check out our youtube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.